Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. In this episode, we're pleased to have Rosie Grant, Executive Director of the Patterson Education Fund, and Kalina Berryman, Executive Director of the Abbott Leadership Institute. Ms. Grant and Ms. Berryman have both played leading roles in promoting grassroots engagement in public school reform. The Patterson Education Fund is a not-for-profit organization founded nearly 40 years ago to promote community involvement. Similarly, for the past 16 years, the Abbott Leadership Institute has educated thousands of parents, students, and advocates on how they can advocate for meaningful change in our public schools. Ms. Grant and Ms. Berryman will discuss the central role of community engagement in the fight for educational equity and excellence for all students. I want to welcome to our uh, podcast series on the right to education in New Jersey, where we're exploring um, the many aspects of uh, the New Jersey Supreme Court's interpretation of the right of all of our school children to a thorough and efficient education. And we're here today to talk to two veteran, experienced grassroots organizers and advocates who are on the ground in two of our largest uh, urban districts and uh, districts that have been schools that have been the subject of many of the court's rulings in the landmark Abbott versus Burke case. Rosie Grant, who's with the Patterson Education Fund and has been there for quite a while, and Kalina Berryman, who ran the Abbott Leadership Institute in Newark and work with parents in Newark. So I wanna welcome you both to our podcast. Thank you, glad to be here. Thank you, David, it's a pleasure. So I wanna start with each of you. Let's start with you, Rosie. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you got into working on education equity at the grassroots level in Patterson and um, how you're working now. And and same question to you, uh, Kalina, but I'm gonna start, let's let Rosie start first. Thank you, David. When I came to Patterson Education Fund, I was a parent of two toddlers. And I thought, what a great place to be because I was always a public school advocate and supporter. And I knew that my children were going to go to public school in Patterson, which is where I lived at the time. So I met the founding director in church and she offered me the job a couple of times before I said yes. (laughs) I had to be ready to move to leave corporate America and take a job that was paying significantly more, but I knew would have meaning for my family. So it was 1992. I had a one-year-old. It was actually Martin Luther King Day. I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and I joined Patterson Education Fund as the program director. Started doing programs, started learning about 
what education equity meant in New Jersey and getting engaged with parent involvement and getting parents aboard. And my first experience that um, I guess pushed me forward into doing the work that I've done since is that I registered my daughter at Dalev School in Patterson and went to my first parent meeting. I was so excited and they asked me what I wanted for my child and I said a world-class education so that you know she could complete compete globally and somebody said well you better get her out of Patterson and everybody laughed and I was so surprised and so set back by that but I didn't buy the get her out of Patterson I still believed it could be done and that just pushed me forward in doing the work that I do because first you had to change the belief system in order to then get my fellow parents to demand that education. And by the way, we were then one year, right about one year into takeover and just a few years into the series of Abbott litigations. And thank you for those, David. So just to follow up, um, takeover, you're meaning uh, the state had taken, state of New Jersey had taken over Correct. the operation of the Patterson School District. Tell me about Patterson Education Fund and now you're leading Patterson Education Fund. What's what's its mission and what does it what does it do? I'll use PEF quite a bit because that's how we're known in the community. Patterson Education Fund's mission is to stimulate community action for change so that Patterson Public Schools educate every child to high standards. So our work is focused on that community stimulation. How do we identify all the people, all the stakeholders who have anything to do with improving our schools? And we've broadened our definition as we've gone along. Anyone who comes in contact with children or family have a role to play in improving public education. So at first we started with mini grants to teachers. And this was 1983 that the organization started, a while before I got there. And I should say I got there when I was 10. But anyhow, <laughs> we started with teacher mini grants and then we saw that they weren't making the impact that we wanted to, that that was aligned with our mission. Yes, it was making impact. Teachers were doing phenomenal things inside their classrooms, but we weren't getting to systemic change. So we moved from doing good over the years to making a difference to making change. And we realized in making change, which we've been doing now for a while, that the only way we can make systemic lasting change is if the community owns the schools and acts as if it's theirs and take accountability for the results that we get from our children. The community has to say, oh, if our children are failing, then there's something we need to do to make that different. So Kalina, what about you? I mean, you, um... You're in, in Newark and you've worked extensively on with parents and community folks around the Newark School District, which has its own set of unique challenges. So tell us about uh, the Abbott Leadership Institute that you were part of and the work that you did there and your involvement in that. Thanks, David. Listening to Rosie, I'm like, sign me up for PF, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I actually came to ALI as a matter of inequity, I was recently, I had recently graduated from college 
and I went to New York public schools. I was top of my class, class president, all of that in a bag of chips. But when it came time for me to go to college, I realized that I'd never visited any college campus. And this was in the 2000. I'd only been on one college campus. I was six in my class, class president, president of my major, and I've only been to one college campus. No one in my family had gone to college. And so I went to, to William Pattis University because that was the only campus that I'd been on. And they gave me a full scholarship. And so then I said, okay, I was smart enough to know that I needed a master's degree and smart enough to know that my parents also couldn't afford that either. And so I said, okay, where do I wanna get a master's from? And I picked Rutgers Newark. <laughs> and so to get the free master's, I had to apply for a job there and get a job. And so I applied for a year to everything I could see. And then finally, Abbott Leadership Institute called me for an interview with Junius Williams. And it changed my life and made me who I am today and so that's how I came to ALI. I was hired at ALI as an administrative assistant. And I was basically supposed to just support Junius Williams, who I didn't know at the time was this great civil rights activist who had this long history of fighting for justice um, in the country. And I didn't know, you know, I was just trying to get a job and get an education. And then I ended up in these Abbott Leadership Institute classes. And one of the first classes was actually David Ciara and, and the Ed Law Center. And I'm in this room with, at the time, it wasn't that many, it was about maybe 20 to 30 parents talking about education policy. And I realized that, wow, my lack of access to college readiness is connected directly to some type of a, a law or a policy or somebody, some action that somehow didn't follow through to my education in North. And it just transformed me to see people everyday people having these intelligent conversations and talking about the work that they were doing in schools. And so I spent my whole career, I'm still at ALI now, even though I, I'm in a different role, but it's been 15 years of doing the work and the work has been empowering parents. And then about two years into my, my, my time at ALI, we started to work with young people to be advocates, to do just what Rosie said, to claim their right to an education, to understand the policies and practices that govern schools so that they can hold folks accountable. And so while I've been an employee for ALI, I really was a student all those years under Junius Williams and Rosie Grant and David and, and Wilhelmina Holder and Lyndon Brown and all of these amazing people who helped to shape my voice. So much so that simultaneously as I began to take leadership of, of ALI and our various programs, I became a mom of a special needs son. And I was able to use what I learned at the Abbott Leadership Institute to not only stop his school for special needs children from closing, but to also work with other parent, dynamic parent and, and, and teacher leaders to secure $3 million in funding for innovations and a new principle and really a new breath of air around our school. And now it's really thriving and growing. And so that is ALI's work to produce parents like me who understand that we have a right and when we don't see something happening in our schools that should be we have no hesitation in calling for justice and no amount of disbelief that we're not going to get it and so when we were first galvanizing parents and saying look guys we got to fix this school you know they were looking at me like i was crazy and i said no watch watch us work and so that's what you know that's what ali is all about 
And we've done that with parents through the ALI classes and with young people through our youth media symposium. We have helped to build some of the most dynamic young leaders in the city of Newark that are now leading organizations, starting nonprofits, working in philanthropy. They're just doing phenomenal work. And most importantly, not only calling for justice in their schools, but now in their workplaces and in the institutions that serve them. So that that's that's my work. And I'm I'm really grateful that I was placed in Newark for my on-the-ground learning. Well, we're also grateful that both of you are have committed yourselves and are doing the amazing work that you're doing. I, I want to ask both of you um, a little bit about the challenges of well, the, the, the population, the student population and families in your communities and, and uh, some of the issues that they face and how do you sort of contend, contend with that? So Rosie, do you wanna start us off? Sure. One of the piece of work that we do at PEF is that we do needs assessments, particularly around full service community schools. So I've had the opportunity to talk to kids and parents and administrators, teachers, everyone, community partners about assets and needs in our communities. And something that struck me in one of the early ones is that we asked kids to envision what their school might look like if they were fully funded and if they had everything they wanted at school and they just couldn't. They had never seen it. They didn't know it. They didn't have the means by which to imagine it. All they wanted was, I'll summarize, a safe route to school, a park to play in, and to feel safe at home and in the buildings. So that that's um, I still I still get choked when I talk about it because that was an awakening. I lived in the same. Patterson in the same town, but did not necessarily have or understand the same circumstances as the kids I, I, I was working with at the time. So that's a, just a tiny look into the lives of our population. We've come a long way, but we're still dealing with poverty. We're dealing with trauma in our communities, in our homes, in our environment. We're dealing with a lot of negatives. And so we have to spend a lot of time making sure that we're addressing that. This is why I'm also engaged in the healing centered engagement work that they're doing at the New Jersey Principals and Supervisors Association. We must find ways to mitigate the traumatic experiences, um, the adverse childhood effects, the, the ACEs for our children and our adults teachers and parents alike, it's hard to get parents coming into a building when their memory of it was all negative. So we have to do something to change that so that we can all work together to make things better for our kids. What Rosie said is actually what resonates with me too. I mean, we could, we could from our lens, think about a child's journey to school and what happened. So, you go to school, there's probably some, there are safety issues and concerns around just your health and safety. You walk into the school building, it's over-policing. There are security everywhere. There are metal detectors. You walk into a building that is in need of repair, that is outdated. You go into classrooms that are under-resourced, that 
a biology class that doesn't even have any of the equipment that it should have, a curriculum that is very standard, that isn't as robust as a society that we're living in today. You go to extracurricular activities that are underfunded. You make appointments with guidance counselors that are that there are not enough of. So all of these things are experiences that young people could have as they travel through school. But I think to Rosie's point, the biggest issue is the lack of expectation. And so while you may see all of these things, there's a lack of expectation of more from that student or family because this is what we know. And then there's a lack of expectation from the adults in the building who allow it to happen. You know, because I know if I was a principal, everyone would know that we were missing something because I would always be talking about what we need. And so those lack of that lack of expectation from both ends keeps us kind of in just the way we are. Even when I think about my son's school, it had been that way for decades before I got there with my expectations. So the work that Rosie and I do is so critical because not only does it raise expectations, but then it shows people you actually have a right to it too, though. Like there, there's a right that you have to a quality education. There are different remedies that started with Abbott that even though Abbott is no longer here, they still exist. But beyond that, we introduce students and families to cities and school districts that are robust. So one, I know one of the greatest experiences that we've had at ALI was one day we took a busload of advocates to Ramsey High School. And Ramsey High School was a comprehensive high school in Ramsey, New Jersey. And we told them, think about this in comparison to one of our local comprehensive high schools. And when they walked into Ramsey and we got this presentation, there were over 100 electives. And we walked into the jewelry making class and there was a room with tens and tens and tens of jewelry. And we walked into woodworking and the kids were making not napkin holders, the children were making lounge chairs and woodworking. So there were 30 lounge chairs laid out in this space. And so it was like, okay, your expectation is higher. You're not asking for anything that doesn't make sense, even though the school system makes you think that you're, you're tripping. You have a right to it. And guess what? The most affluent, whitest districts in our, in our state are doing it and doing way more than the law requires. And if you put those things together, in a community that is safe of parent and student advocates who are always pushing each other, supporting each other, growing their knowledge, then you end up having really quality advocacy. So, you know, it's that lack of expectation, the understanding of your, your access and, and the laws that govern schools, and then the fact that what you want really exists that I think is missing. All of those other things are just the issues that need to be tackled along the way. I'd spent all this time in Patterson doing ask the right question, talking to parents about what questions to ask to make sure that their kids are being prepared for college and career, telling them, yes, you have a right to see the curriculum and helping them to think about how to frame their questions, et cetera. So I moved out of Patterson in a suburban into a suburban community and I went armed. You know, I had my 10 questions. I was ready for the pushback, et cetera. I walked into the building and they said, Hi, Mrs. Grant, how are you? We're so happy to see you. And they toured me around the place. And then they asked me, what are my skills? Do you wanna join the computer club? Go talk to this teacher, she'll have the curriculum ready for you, et cetera. And it was culture shock because I had not experienced that before and I didn't expect it, even though I was constantly demanding it before. 
So that's another thing that drives me. I don't want to walk into a school building and get what from a security guard. That's no way to greet anybody, especially you work for me. I'm a member of this community. If this is my school, you work for me. So that's something that's also driven me in this quest for equity. Why can't Patterson parents get the same respect? Why can't Patterson children get the same respect that the parents in the suburbs get from their schools? I want to ask you both a question that you just brought up, I think, in your answer. You know, we've been talking on this podcast about the Abbott rulings, and those rulings were really the court's directives to the state to dramatically improve funding and resources and in New Jersey's very segregated public school system, right? So both of your communities have very high numbers of families that are living below the poverty line, unemployed, et cetera, that kind of, those kinds of issues. And also both of your communities are largely black and Latino. To what extent does sort of structural racism and structural sort of barriers, given the way these districts are set up and the concentration of poverty and so forth and, and you know, other sorts of issues in your community impact that lack of expectations, as you call it, and, and impact your work? Well, I'll just use the, the analogy that we use in YMS when we try to explain the Abbott rulings. So we kind of say, you know, let's imagine that you have a beautiful three-story home and you have a shack. And you're going to now, you have this, this, it's already unequal. It is what it is. And so now something comes along that says, okay, going forward, each of you are going to get $100,000 a year to maintain your property. And so while it's great that you have this $100,000 a year to maintain this property, this is still a shack and this is still a three-story home that has been you know, maintained for a while. And so at some point you have to take some time to look at that shack and repair the things that are wrong in that space. And so I think for a community like Newark, while that shack stood the test of time and it was going strong and if that, you know, people were living in, it's okay. There is some damage that has to be looked at. And that goes along with, you know, the conversations around expectations. So what do you need to do? You need to repair that. And I think that the reason that I've always been drawn to the work of ALI is it's around empowerment. So how do you begin to empower people so that they can begin to work on and transform their own lives? So that they begin to expect more for their own lives so that you begin to heal some of that trauma that neglect has caused you know you look you you know that that you're lacking something but you're not quite sure what to do with it and so empowerment is always key and critical you know how do we make people take them out of that feeling that they have been given something inferior for their entire lives like rosie said coming into school buildings that didn't do me right and now expecting them to do my child right. And so what we've seen with the parents that we work with is even if they come in with maybe not the greatest expectations of education, we start by just telling them, you have a voice, you matter, you deserve, you could become, you can contribute. And, and giving them the skill sets or introducing them to the opportunities to build their own skill sets. The work that Rosie and I do, yes, is advocacy for education, but I bet she'll agree that what we find is that people become better. People become stronger. People go back to college. People change jobs. 
people, you know, they go back to school and they do different things. They begin to own their own power. And so when you have your own power, you start to take care of that dilapidated building yourself. You start to do the things that you need to do while this, you know, these remedies are coming in as well. And so if we have more spaces that were centered around empowerment, I know that one of the things ALI parents love is having access. You should see how many times the Ed Law Center's name is thrown around. Conversation <laughs> just happened last week. Oh, we'll just call the Ed Law Center. The ability to be able to have social capital, the ability to be able to communicate and be comfortable with people in positions of power, all of that gets you to the place where you no longer need anybody's help and assistance. And so as we think about advocacy and empowerment, we have to continue to grow spaces that do that. You know, like Rosie said, she started as a parent and now she's the leader of that space. I was a kid who didn't even know what to do about college and now I have my own consulting company that's doing really well. How can we do more work like that so that people are stronger and better, thereby making school systems better? Yeah, Rosie, I'm gonna ask it, I wanna ask the same question. I get at the same issue, but a little bit differently. So you know, I've been leading the Abbott litigation since 1996. And, you know, a lot of the rulings when they came out required the state, state basically through state tax dollars and income tax and all sales tax, all of that, to spend significantly more money than they had been on schools and children in Patterson and Newark and Camden and Trenton and the other Abbott districts. And I would often hear from people, well, you know, that's just throwing good money after bad. That the parents really, communities really, you know, don't care. And the, the real problem is the lack of interest and, in, you know, it's kind of, it's their own fault kind of thing. And not just from, you know, taxpayers and other people, but even from lawmakers in various ways have expressed that over the years when they've resisted. We've had to go back to the court so many times to get them to do the right thing. What do you say to that? What, what do you say to people like that? Because they're still out there. They're still out there. They live among us. <laughs> They're still out there. That's yeah. for sure. I want to start by saying poor urban centers didn't happen accidentally. You know, they happened by opportunity sometimes, by happenstance, and sometimes strategically you know, on the part of people with power. So think back to the Underground Railroad. Slaves escaped and, and came along this route and ended up in places where they felt safe. And then we built high rises to house them and people lived on top of each other in these, in these communities. And then there was redlining that when folks started to earn money and wanted to buy a home, they couldn't buy in certain neighborhoods because they weren't welcome because of the color of their skin. And then there was the difficulty of getting a mortgage from a bank because of the color of your skin. And we have families who were not allowed to build generational wealth for hundreds of years. So here we are, we don't have mom or grandma to die and leave us money. We don't have families with businesses established that we can graduate high school and go into. So when you tell people to pull themselves up and it's your own fault, my response would be get educated. Look at our history. Look at what got us to where we are right now. We're still struggling with issues of racism, classism, etc. In in 2022, who would have thought that America got so upset at apartheid in South Africa and look at us. We just didn't name it. 
and we're still struggling with it. So that would be my response. I got my first hate mail when I gave testimony in Trenton. And I said, I would pay a little bit more in my property taxes to make sure that kids in Newark and Patterson could have adequate school buildings. And people got so upset about that. And I got called all kinds of names and somebody actually wrote me a letter. And I, I counted that as my first success story. <laughs> <laughs> because at least I had raised enough attention in saying that to get people to either react or to start thinking about it. But we need more conversations. We need to keep raising this issue. It, it is absolutely undergirded by racism because people feel like I've made it on my own. Why can't they make it? And they don't think about all the reasons, all the generation of reasons, all the trauma that we're dealing with that is preventing us from making it. And I'm not saying white people, black people, Spanish people here, because we have black folks who have made it. And I speak this as a black woman, we have black folks who have made it, who say, well, I made it, why can't you? Because the supports were not the same. The investments were not the same. And so we have to look at the circumstances before we make these judgments. You know, it's so interesting. The um, We talked about this on a previous podcast, the uh, 1990 decision in Abbott, the big decision in the Abbott versus Burke case. This is in 1990 after the trial. There was a trial in which the lawyers compared exactly what you you did, Kalina, which was, but it was done in court back in the, the mid 1980s. So the disparities were so much greater back then, comparing what was offered children in suburban, largely white districts, and what was, what children received when they walked into schools in East Orange, Irvington, Patterson, and the court talked about these tremendous disparities, these stark disparities in the system that the state had had allowed, to your point, Rosie, had, had it, it sort of intentionally created through its policies and the way things were set up. And the court then sort of launching into its attempt to do what it could to force the state to remediate or to provide a remedy to this terrible, terrible situation that had come up. And I, I say that to transition to, I wanna to talk to you both a little bit about the Abbott rulings and how and what you think about them, you know, the court through a whole series of rulings and you were, both of you were around at different parts of this or all of it. Rosie, I think you were there for the whole thing. Kalina, you may have come on a little bit later, but not that much later. We've had rulings that required adequate funding that was comparable to what was provided in the suburban districts. The court has ruled that if the state is going to concentrate kids in poverty in the subset of districts, that those kids need even more additional programming. We used to call it supplemental programs or extra programming for poor kids. The court ordered preschool for every three and four-year-old in your communities. School building improvements. The court said that these kids have a right to attend a building that's safe and not overcrowded and adequate and ordered the state to finance that. I'll just throw it out to both of you and you can, you know, what's what stands out about those rulings? What has it meant to you? Has it, has it made any difference to you in your work? And, and more importantly, has it made any difference to the parents and families and kids that, you're, that you've been working with? And has it, has, it, has it had an impact on that issue of expectations that you, you're talking so much about? It has made difference. It has made a difference. Thank you for your work, David. 
And I kept getting excited every time there was a decision because in my mind, the decision was always for the plaintiff. However, it didn't matter who was at the top of the administration, there was always pushback. It could have been a Democrat or a Republican, there was always pushback. We had a friend who went into the Department of Education and we said, yes, we'll finally get what we want. No, we didn't because they drink the Kool-Aid. So it's it's been an uphill battle, but we have had successes. Look at our preschools and now the preschool expansion work that's happening. New Jersey's preschool system has been lauded across the country and probably internationally because of the investment that was made there. Unfortunately, there were a lot of missteps. There was whole school reform. And in Patterson, schools chose whatever whole school reform they wanted. And then, you know, it came down like, no, 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 everybody's doing success for all. So there was a lot of investment made that then, I wouldn't say it was wasted, but people had to take time to rethink and reorganize in order to move in the new direction. We're still waiting for facilities. I remember being really excited about that first facilities plan, the long range facilities plan that we developed in Patterson and the community was very much engaged. We identified that we needed 11 new schools in order to ease the overcrowding and take the old buildings that were no longer functional offline. We're still waiting. And, and you know, it's been back to court over and over again. So nothing happens. I, I should quote Fred, Frederick Douglass here, right? Power never concedes without demand. And we kept demanding and we will keep demanding. So we're thankful for the court decisions because it got us a little bit more every time in different areas, but we still haven't gotten to equity and adequacy. And let me just follow that up. Is it, you know, what are the main challenges? Like, so, okay, there's been progress. Funding has improved. The levels of funding have gone up, but there's still gaps. You have full day, full year preschool for all three, all your three and four year olds. Some of your buildings have been fixed up and replaced, but a lot more still remain. So what's, what's still left on the agenda for you in terms of the investments that need to be made in your community and your school children? We still have overcrowded classroom. We still have classes at the high school level with 34, 35 kids. This was before pandemic. I worried in coming back from pandemic about how we would fit kids into these buildings if they have to be spaced, if they have to be socially distanced. We're bursting at the seams in our buildings. Our enrollment has not decreased. It's gone up a little bit every year. So unlike other cities where they're seeing less kids, we're having the same amount of kids in the public schools and increasing, and we're having increasing charter registration, charter school, non-district school registration as well. So that's why I'm saying we're not there yet. There are communities that would not accept the condition of our buildings, and I'm not blaming the district here. They're doing the best they can with limited resources. There are communities that would not accept the overcrowded classrooms. Kalina referenced the labs without proper equipments. I walked into a classroom where kids were sitting on the heater. All the, all the seats were taken and kids were sitting on the heater on the side of the classroom. And this was when we were doing our equity tour. We had just come from Passaic County Technical Institute 
and seen all the wonderful things Kalina talked about earlier. And then we went into a Patterson High School, and this is what made us ceiling tiles missing, kids sitting on the sides, not enough equipment for students to use, et cetera, et cetera. So we're still a long way off from equity, and I don't know what it'll take for us to get serious about all children. This has been the mantra. All children deserve a high quality education. And we get a lot of rhetoric around that, but we're not seeing it happen. We, we've never gotten enough funding to make that happen in these communities. I think one of our most important avenues for justice is a school board. You know, that is the role that really should be calling for, you know, they should be the ones holding the state accountable, holding principals accountable, empowering residents. And what we saw was that very soon after the Abbott rulings began to manifest into dollars into school districts, or even right before the schools were taken over by the state and the power of the school board changed and the authority of the school board changed. And in Newark, we've really seen that play out where you know, it went from state appointed school board members to politically controlled school board members where nobody is really actually accountable to the people and to the children, like specifically, there's somebody else that's kind of pulling the strings. And so, you know, one thing that's going to be important is galvanizing folks around the role of the school board, what is it, what it is intended to do. And so when you have a school system that is not properly thinking about its future, or adequately serving young people that that school board holds that superintendent accountable. And then that superintendent knows that the school board is going to hold them accountable. So they are constantly advocating for the needs of the children to the state. That has to be something that we think about. I'm sure that was not just a coincidence that schools boards were taken over around that time. We've also had an influx of charter schools, which have taken resources, you know, however you want to frame it is up to you, but it has impacted resources that are coming into district schools. And so my answer to has Abbott been effective? Yes, I'm a child of Abbott. You know, I was in, I started preschool, well, kindergarten in 1987. So I'm an Abbott kid. I'm, you know, I went to school during that time and I know that my education was better than what had been before me, but there was just a lot more work and it takes time. You don't erase centuries of racism and discrimination with you know 40 years of funding it just doesn't happen that way but i think that now schools are a lot better off i know even the role of the parent liaison came out of out of an avid ruling dropout prevention coordinators and, and just focusing on you know dropout students dropping out and attendance came out of the avid legislation people weren't looking at that uh, so yeah it's, it's been transformative it is the Abbott rulings are something that people in other states beg for, you know, some type of a legal undertone to like how schools are funded. But that expectation part and that political education part and like empowering people to really understand that they have a right to excellence. And it's like undeniable and you can't even see anything else but your right to it. And then giving them the tools that they need to understand how decisions are made in schools is going to be critical. That's our next step. I would invest in that because that'll pay off longer in the end than just continuing to put money in remedies that people don't even know how to hold folks accountable for. So that would be my thing is we got to continue to grow educated folks who understand 
politics, understand policies, understand the law, have the social capital to make things happen, and fundamentally believe that they deserve the best education that is possible. Absolutely. If, yeah. if New Jersey had embraced the Abbott rulings and had embraced SFRA, we would have equity. Right. The rulings are great. They're phenomenal. SFRA is based on equity, on meeting the needs of the children in the schools, but we never embraced it as a state or legislature did not embrace it. Our administrators at the state level did not embrace it. So yes, Abbott was great. And yes, SFRA, although we pushed back because we didn't like the, the numbers at first, it would have brought us to equity had it been funding. At the time I stopped counting, which was maybe three, four years ago, there was $280 million that Patterson should have gotten and didn't. We'll never make that up. We can't recapture it. So that raises, a, a, you know, the, so the court rulings, and you've brought this up, is place the responsibility to make these investments on the state. And I mean by the state, the political representatives are representatives in Trenton, the legislators and governor. And to your point, Rosie, I always say that the resistance to equity, educational equity is bipartisan. Yeah, uh, it is deep. It is deep, longstanding and bipartisan. But so one of the things I think you're both saying is, is that one of the reasons we're still struggling and haven't made as much progress as we should have is because local. Well, let me say one other thing before I ask this question. You know, we represent the plaintiffs in the Abbott case are school children. It's very different than school funding cases in other states where the plaintiffs are often school districts. And I always say that if the Abbott school districts were the plaintiffs in our case, they would have settled a long time ago for very little money. But because we represent the school kids, we've done everything we can to figure out what they need and go for it. But they're not part of the case, but they have a very important role. This is point I want to get to. And, and I think you're pointing it out. Let, let, so let me ask the question this way or raise it and you can respond. So it's one of the problems we've had with making more progress under Abbott is because local school districts, and by school districts, I mean school boards, the you know leadership, superintendents, and others haven't been more aggressive in the politics of Abbott. In, and the, but by the politics of Abbott, I mean turning and facing the state, facing the state, their state legislative delegations, facing the governors of either party and demanding what the court has ordered that they deliver. Is that an issue? It seems to, seems to me you're both saying that that's a significant issue. And what are you both doing in your work to sort of counteract or to, to, to kind of embolden in your local elected school boards and superintendents to stand up and you know, and advocate for your for their kids vis-a-vis -vis the state for the kinds of investments that we still need. I am present at every school board meeting, every one of them. And I bring them information from all the statewide coalition that PEF staff participate in. And we ask them, please call the governor, call your legislators. These these are issues that are going to be affecting our children. We need your support, we need your advocacy. And I have gotten some results from some board members. So I can't say they never do, but I think they could do more, not just individually, but collectively. I, I saw our school board activate around returning us to local control, along with other partners. 
I did not see as much of that around Abbott. We did manage to get some school board members to go to the hearings when when um, Abbott was remanded to a lower court. So presence was good. But I think that our school boards could claim the power that they have as the body elected by the people and do some more advocacy at the state level. Yes, yeah, state appointed superintendents are not going to hold the state account. Correct. Well, you had, <laughs> I should point that out that you've both had that problem in your districts, which right. is the state, the state directly responsible for your districts and then responsible to implement Abbott. And there's a and obviously a serious political problem with that. But go ahead, Colleen. I didn't mean to interrupt. I mean, that's it. Okay, we're going to, okay, you guys want Abbott. All right, but we're going to take the power away from you. <laughs> so, okay, here's Abbott, but give us control of governance and of your city. So we appoint the superintendent that is going to hold us accountable for making sure that Abbott works out for you, okay? So that's what we faced. And, and superintendents who... You know, we've had a lot of superintendents in Newark whoo, over the years, and any superintendent that tried, that was appointed by the state, that tried to raise expectations, somehow didn't make it very long. And so I think, you know, now there are different challenges. We have you know, a non-state, we've returned to local control fully. That's wonderful. We have, I think, a, a very promising superintendent and Superintendent Leon. However, our school board, you know, I know people don't like to say it out loud, but it is not really a locally, truly elected school board. Our school board is, is controlled by political powers. And so are, you know, so is in some way those who govern schools. And so it still comes down to people understanding that. Like we, at ALI, we, we have people come in and actually educate folks in how the school board is made up and how it's made up in Newark. And one of the things that we've been able to do in the past was get some folks on the board who would be advocates for the community who did, whose tie was to the community and only the community. What we found is that they didn't last very long or if there were you know, school board members who were a part of slates that were politically connected and they begin to challenge and advocate for some of these things that they're entitled to through various legal rights that, that we have they might not last that long either, you know? So it's a struggle. It, it's, a, it's a real struggle, but education is still at the heart of it. I, even when my son, we used the older ruling from Abbott to advocate for the remodels of my son's school because he was entitled to them. His school was on the list for a completely new building two decades ago. And it never happened. And so we were able to say, look, you know, this was something that we were entitled to. And while they didn't get a new building, they were able to get the renovations that took away this feeling of despair when you walked into my son's school. And we used the school board to do that. We, they helped us, they advocated for us. We, we used our different channels, but it was not easy at all. There was a parent group in Patterson that organized parents to go to the school development authority meetings. And they went to every board meeting and they went to party city and they bought hard hats and construction vests so that they would be noticed because they didn't have a voice at these meetings only when there was public testimony and the sda uh, head at the time when they broke ground on a school in patterson said we're here because of these parents which which was great it's it's kind of an, a wonderful example of how advocacy works 
However, we shouldn't have to fight that hard for something that the court said we must do, the state must provide. Yeah. Uh, you shouldn't have to get on a bus every month at 7.30 to get there for their meeting yeah. in order to get one school. And Rosie, when I was thinking about that we were gonna talk about equity, what comes to my mind now, especially since the pandemic is the inequity in how advocates are able to live their lives. We literally have to spend most of our free time thinking about justice, thinking about fighting for children. And we don't really get to think about vacations and, and play with our families. And you know that can get lost in this work because we most of the time we have other jobs or other commitments. And it's such a process. I think David, earlier on, you talked about like the commitment that you have to have to keep doing this. I, I feel closer to my ALI family in many ways than my own because I spend so much of my life with them. But then I'm thinking about like, wow, how many days and weeks and months were we not able to just live as human beings? And so I'm looking forward to the day when black and brown people get to just be happy and have joy and, and, and take vacations and, and plan events with their children, you know, versus having to continuously fight for things that we should be entitled to. And so as we talk about equity, I would love to be getting to also add to that, you know, like how much of the other parts of our lives we lose because we're continuously fighting for better schools and better educate, you know, better education for our children so that they can hopefully get to enjoy life and live abundantly. Well, and also um, I wanna ask you about a little bit about that. Um, one of the issues that you both must face is that, you know, there's a lot of um, philanthropic money that goes into education reform these days from wealthy folks and from foundations and so forth and so on. A lot of it goes to charter schools and things like that. It seems like very little goes into organizations such as yours, which are, you know, grassroots based in the community, doing the hard work. And also, I think, and I'll just throw in um, work that that um, is going to require a sustained effort year in, year out given that the resistance, as we talked about it, to equity and to implementing the Abbott rulings, as we've seen over the last couple of decades, is so great, regardless of who happens to be in political power and trend. So how difficult, is that part of that, what you're talking about, inability to get a vacation is also because you're doing it on a shoestring, you don't have a lot of resources, a lot of support, and are you frustrated by the fact that there isn't more attention and investment coming from different places where it could could come to building the kind of political sophisticated political campaigns that you're you both say we need on the ground in order to raise expectations to press your districts and to ultimately hold the state accountable to your school children funding is always an issue we are fortunate that there were two new jersey foundations that give us general operating support, a significant amount. So that allows us to do what we need to do as an organization, as long as we're doing it uh, toward meeting our mission. Uh, so I'm thankful for that. Outside of that, there are lots of foundations that they need to fund programs. And so if you're not running a program, uh, it's hard to get in 
to get into their docket. I like I don't want to spend my time doing after school programming, et cetera, because our, our work is advocacy. Uh, but there's this line between advocacy and organizing and, of course, lobbying that we have to be very delicate with. There's nothing preventing 501c3s from lobbying. If I spend my entire time lobbying, it's not enough money that it's a significant portion of our budget. Uh, however, it's not something that foundations want to fund. And, and the other piece is in New Jersey, there are only so many funders. And of course, it's their prerogative to, to decide what they'll fund. And organizing and advocacy is usually not at the top of their list. Yeah, I would agree. Um, we, you know, ALI too has been fortunate to have dedicated funders who helped us really to grow over the years. Um, but we found that I know one of my contributions to ALI has been developing programming. And so, you know, we have our advocacy work, the parent piece, but once we developed YMS, which started off as a, the Youth Media Symposium, which teaches young people advocacy using um, media as a tool for change. It started off as a four-week summer program. Now it's a year-round program. And so YMS is something that people readily fund. Uh, the YMS students, to address the inequities around college readiness, developed our YMS College Success Center, which has been running for seven years. That is our biggest funding source, is the College Success Program because it provides a service. And so at times, the advocacy part, especially if you're still short-staffed, because now you're raising money to fund staffing for the program, but not necessarily to fund the work of sustainable movement building. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it, it shifts your priorities. And it's a lot, you know, at one point, because of our, our short staffing, I think all of us at ALI have, have served many, many roles. And one day I'll, you know, talk about why I ended up transitioning out of ALI during a pandemic. It was just because I just couldn't do all of that work and remote learning with my son in the middle of COVID. It was impossible. And I started to feel like, you know, and I can't even on my salary afford anybody to help me. This just doesn't make sense. I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't. And it was very hard to make that, that shift. And I'm glad that I'm still able to be a part of ALI um, in this way. And, you know, who knows what the future holds. But it is a real issue. And I think we have to figure out, Rosie, how do we build the financial power and will so that we can sustain and grow our, our work and not be reliant on uh, foundations and, and other types of funding? Like, how can we do this? How can we, you know, make it so that we can afford to expand the way that we need to? Um, maybe it takes us coming together collaboratively and saying, hey, let's share some roles that can help, you know, propel our work. We have to think a little more creatively because um, we've also lost funding because folks thought we were running superintendents and other folks out of the city. <laughs> so they were like, look, we can't fund you anymore. We're sorry because it's it's all connected in there. Um, and so I think, you know, we have to figure out how we can become more empowered so that we can do our work and not rely so much on other people's money. How do you both work on the issue? It's, I know something we're I'm very concerned about with uh, Education Law Center. The Abbott rulings are there, but they've morphed. You know, they've changed. The court has stepped away from school funding when it signed off on the school funding formula. And the work of school funding and getting the kids the amount of money they're entitled to goes on, but it doesn't go on under a court order. It goes, it goes to the legislature every year. And we are back in court on 
right now, as you both know, in front of the Supreme Court on more money for school buildings for another round of school construction. Both of your districts have buildings that are have been in the queue that would get funded for that. How do you keep those entitlements, the right to education? I mean, really, it's what Abbott, the rulings are about. Your kids are entitled to that funding today, full funding under the formula. And if you're $200 million short, that's an entitlement that your children have, a constitutional entitlement. If the building is overcrowded, there's a constitutional entitlement for the state to finance that building to be fixed. So how do you keep those rulings, those rights front and center with a whole new generation, new generations that are coming in, parents and, and families. And also, what are you both doing in your in your work to, to kind of cultivate, if possible, the next generation of champions of equity in your communities? Well, for ALI, you know, we have not since the pandemic, we're still having classes virtually, but since the pandemic, our Saturday classes haven't been able to happen in person, but that's how we've kept it going over the years, is having those Saturday classes every other week and keeping people updated, continue. I mean, we've brought Education Law Center in every single uh, series to let us know what's going on. And one of the most powerful things about our work is that the same parents that started when I that were in ALI when I started with ALI are still the same grandparents and whatever role they're playing now today and we've just added on and added on and there's this wonderful community and we not we but they really do in a way have a whole lot of power um, now whether we are able to effectively organize collectively all of the time is something else, but they really are the ones that are at the school board meetings, are the ones that if the superintendent has to pull together a community council, they're called upon. So they are there, they are front and center. Um, and so I'm hoping that we will be able to continue that. And in terms of building the next generation, our youth media symposium program has done that. Uh, and now our graduates are parents. They are parents, you know, they are, they are the parents and they are constantly holding schools accountable. And they are not even, the best thing about our YMS alumni is that your education in school is only a part of what we're doing. You know, we're traveling the world. We are reading to you at home. We're going to see different natural resources. Like they are taking education beyond just what schools provide. And so that's, you know, and they're civically engaged. They vote, they they attend meetings, they hold folks accountable. I heard a couple of them the other day talking about buildings that were being um, given for, that they learned about at the, um, oh, it just slipped my mind, the uh, planning board meetings. So they are civically engaged and they, they have a right, like they have this feeling of entitlement to what they deserve that is beyond what I had at their age. So, you know, it still all comes down to just spaces that empower people that are longstanding. And that's what ALI has been 20 years. You can count on it, whether it's in person or virtual, you can come here to be empowered along your journey of growth and evolution from parent, grandparent, student, parent, whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, I think, and I think Patterson Education Fund is the same way. Pretty much doing the same thing. We have uh, clubs for our young people. We have a STEAM club where it's about the work, but it's also about environmental sciences and making reparations to the harm that humans cause 
to our environment. At the same time, they're learning leadership development. Uh, they're doing career exploration. They are mentoring younger people and they're mostly girls. We have a girls and a boys club and we have a summer science club as well. Our girls, I have watched over all these years and their parents, their professionals, they're now supervisors inside our public schools and they're taking all this that they did and that they learned and they're applying it. So we have been able to influence what happens inside our schools. I said earlier, we don't necessarily want to run programs, but when we do, we want them fully resourced and we make sure that the kids have these opportunities. We sent the boys to um, Oklahoma City to see the longest um, possible eclipse uh, in any of our lifetimes so that they would have these experiences and get excited about learning and get excited about giving back. So there's a lot of that happening. This work is constant because just by the nature of it, we're working with our public schools, the kids grow up, the parents move on, people do better and move out of the city. Some choose to say, some, some move. It's, it's an evolution that we have to expect. So we're always, always taking in new parents, taking on new kids, helping them to maneuver the system and building capacity, help them build their own capacity. I don't wanna say empower because people are already empowered, but helping them to use the power that they have effectively. Uh, you get people by wherever their self-interest is. My child is failing or my child needs X, Y, Z, but then the work that we do, and I, I would say the same on Kalina's part, is to get them to look at the common good and how helping their child can also transition into helping all our kids succeed. Right? And I think at the heart of that is just that expectation piece. You know, our young parents, they call us and they might not remember all of the steps. They'll say, Kalina, my son is in preschool and they don't have, I don't think that this is happening right. You know, they. I think that they should have this going on and like, there should be another language I think in here and it's not happening. You know, the expectation light bulb goes off and it's like, okay, well, if you think that, then let's think about how we can make it happen. And so that piece, that expectation seed is, is really transformative as we continue this fight. So I have just a couple more questions and then we'll wrap it up. But I wanted to ask you both of, both of your districts, your communities, largely under state super, superintendents, we talked a little bit about state takeover, fairly dramatically expanded charter schools. And so how does the charter school presence in your community, and then you've got parents and who are charter school parents and parents of students in charter schools and then in district schools. How has that, in your view, I know this might be a little of a tricky question, but I'm gonna throw it out anyway. How's it impact the drive for equity across the whole system to make sure that every kid in Patterson or in Newark in a public school gets what they need? We really suffered in Patterson around expanding charter schools, not so much because of the schools themselves, but because of how they're funded. So you'll remember that schools were flat funded for somewhere around nine or 10 years and charters were opening, but enrollment was not decreasing at the public schools. So every year the district was cutting a larger check 
for the charter schools, even though the district itself was flat funded. So there was less resources to go around for the 29,000 kids in the district schools because they were having to pay more to support the kids in the charter schools. So I guess because our population was growing or maybe it's that private and parochial schools were closing and those kids were going to charter school, but somehow the growth, the growth kept happening in the public schools, even as the charter expanded. So the district in Patterson took a big hit. My advocacy around that has been fund the charters directly because cutting that check for millions of dollars hurt. Fund the charters according to their enrollment and fund the district according to their enrollment. We're, we're better at that now than we were, but like the money we didn't get under SFRA, we will never recover those funds that did not come into the district. Are there divisions among the parents though? Do you see like the charter school parents fighting and then you, you know, or is, how's that all working out? I mean, you, I mean, I see this in Newark quite a bit. You have a whole contingent of folks that are standing up for the charter schools uh, and their interests. And then you've got Kalina and all of, all of her folks trying to stand up for, we didn't have this problem 20 years ago. Everybody was in the same boat fighting and, and, and rowing, in the, rowing in the same direction. So Kalina, how's that played out in Newark? Well, first, you know, we really can't blame people for navigating to something that seems to be providing better. Because what you basically found was that perception one is very important. And for those whose expectations of education, you know, were different, it was, hey, I perceive this to be better for my kid. And so I need to go here. And what I found as the biggest challenge was that people who were leading, growing, developing charter schools, they had a focus on, on creating that perception and making sure that by any means necessary, they had the data that it would take to convince folks that this is better and having all of the different attractive features that would draw parents to this. And I don't blame parents for doing that. What my issue was, was that we had in Newark state appointed superintendents who did not feel the need to make their schools that they were governing as attractive and as excellent, to tell their story, to change perception. Now we have a new superintendent who's trying to do that and you can see the change. You can see the change. This superintendent is saying, look, okay, you exist, but I'm not worried about you. I'm gonna focus on making sure that I have some quality options, that we're changing perception, that we are you know, investing in marketing, that we're using resources differently. And now you're beginning to see a shift back because at the same time, parents are also realizing like, wait, your school is kind of mean <laughs> and my kids don't have any freedom here. And you treat me <laughs> like, I'm like, like you're doing me a favor. So as parents be, are beginning to get more, kind of understand and pull back some of the smoke and mirrors, over here we have, yeah, there's some challenges, but at least our challenges are in your face. You see them, but now let's show you how we're trying to remedy that. And so I think at one point in Newark, there was a lot of contention because money was being taken out of district schools to fund charter schools. And there was, in addition to that, just a larger investment in charter schools. So philanthropy was pouring money into charter schools and, and, and it was just this, this 
thing, you know, that was growing so rapidly and disinvesting in neighborhood schools. And we also knew that the charter schools weren't taking the children with the biggest challenges or the children that had disabilities. They weren't taking the children whose parents weren't involved because their parents weren't signing them up for it. So there was this perception that they were educating the same children but they were not educating the same children. And that was hard you know, to deal with as an advocate. But now I think we've come to the point where things have kind of settled. And now that we have a superintendent who is focused on growing the district, you know, we don't have to fight so hard because before we were like trying to fight the superintendent to care about the schools really and invest, and then trying to fight them to not take everything. And it was a <laughs> lot. Um, so, you know, it's a different space. But I think now it's just a matter of at the charter school side, um, starting parents starting to see that this is not really the best option if I want my child to have a voice and if I want my child to be well-rounded and if I want my child to have a certain level of power within themselves, you know, that's starting to become more, more important and children are starting to say, hey, you know, this isn't, this isn't for me. And since the district has more options, parents are able to make those decisions. But we still have in our comprehensive high schools and our schools that already exist, inequity, you know, because now we're focusing on these shiny new options and the same schools that have been neglected over the years are, are in many ways being neglected now. And in many ways we have not rebuilt um, community investment in them either. We have not yeah. had the charter explosion in Patterson that other cities have seen. Yeah, yeah. And the district has been collaborative. As I said, the district's enrollments stayed even and grew over time, even as the charter enrollments grew. And I have not seen that combativeness amongst the parents. Uh, we're, we're not um, experiencing that as much in Patterson as I've seen in other communities. Well, I think Newark and Camden were sort of targeted by financial backers of charter schools and the charter school networks, you know, the national networks that came in, KIPP and Uncommon and all of those. And so I think the growth there has been, uh, the growth in both of those places under state leadership has been pretty, pretty dramatic, more so than in Patterson. I wanted to although ask you about the pandemic. You know, a lot of the inequities you're talking about preceded the pandemic. Talk a little bit about the impact of the pandemic on equity. I, you know, obviously it's, it's, we've written about this at ELC and done a lot of work on this about how it's exposed pre-existing inequities that had already been, always been there. So shortages, teacher shortages, staff shortages, building conditions, and those sorts of things. But what new challenge, equity challenges have, has the pandemic brought on your your schools and your kids and your community? I have to say, as we went into pandemic, it really did highlight the inequities. We had 19,000 Patterson kids that were sent home without devices. We had not gotten to one-on-one. -on -one. The district had just started working at one-on-one -on -one technology, starting with the high school and then working their way down. So we sent 19,000 kids home, and a month later, we couldn't account for them. There was no way to reach them. Administration eventually got on the phone and called homes to say, hey, we didn't get your written assignments that we sent you home with. Is everyone okay? And it took a while 
for us to get that equipment. Then there was a shortage because everybody else needed devices. So it took a while, but that did really highlight the inequity that we knew existed around technology and, and internet access. So many homes with no internet access except on a phone in, in the household. The good thing that came from that is that now we have people chipped in, you know, people stepped up to the plate, the district used some of the federal funds, and now our kids all have access to the internet when they're home. So now they're home, they've been home for going on uh, three weeks now, and they're still learning, and, and we're thankful for that. So I will say that. The facilities piece certainly got highlighted because when it was time to reopen, there were so many things that would have prevented us from reopening, which was highlighted by an advocacy campaign. However, these things weren't new. They were now being highlighted because we were so much more conscious of having uh, good air quality in our buildings and safe spaces for our kids and adults. Some of those inequities are still there. In, in some communities, we got the American Recovery Funds and we were able to use it for additional support. In Patterson, 70% of it went to facilities remediation. Things that had been neglected for years at no fault of the district, they did the best they could. But all these things that had been neglected for years now had to be fixed before people were allowed back into the building. And so it ate away at the majority of the funding. I think, you know, everything that Rosie said, plus for me, from my lens, the three things that are just, they just bother me now are one, just kids not coming to virtual school. There are weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of, 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 of educational time missed because kids didn't show up at all. And then on top of that, for kids who did show up, there are weeks and weeks and weeks of really just not that good virtual education because teachers had never had to use technology in this way, where in more affluent districts, they're probably just, they're, I'm sure they're just far more creative in how they educate. Then you have special needs children like my son who lost hours and hours and hours of services that they will never be able to get back. And an article came out that said 1 million fewer young people are in college. And we actually worked with ACNJ earlier this year, our young people to highlight that that was a neglected group. Those who graduated high school in 2019 and 2020 and now 2021, a lot of them didn't go to college. A lot of them are just floating in the air. And these are like our adults and nobody's even think there are no remedies for them. Like we're focusing on the school system, but these kids are just out here. And so we're, you know, ALI created the North Grad Center around that time so that we could help our recent high school graduates. We needed a space to help them to get back into school, but so many of them are not in, in college. And so, you know, those things, just glare out at me all of the time. But I think that probably out of everything, what we really saw was the inequities in our homes. Kids weren't showing up to school because their parents were working and there is no nanny and there is no, you can't hire somebody to come in and help you with your children and make sure that they're in school. And, you know, it, it, 
there was just a lack of access to resources at home that would enable people to even show up healthy to virtual learning. And so, you know, I, I'm one of those parents who were able, you know, if I didn't give me, I didn't need a device from school, I had one, you know, we could do all those things, but I still had a hard time getting my kid to school every day because I had to work. And even though it was virtual, I can't do both. So, you know, I think that in the coming years, the damage that this pandemic has done to education will start to show. I don't even think we know how to quantify it yet, but we're in trouble and it's going to show in the outcomes of these kids. I saw a webinar where we were looking at some data around the achievement gap and what they have found so far. Now, this was around reading. What they've found so far is that the kids who were already underperforming lost at a greater rate than the kids who were already doing well. They're doing better and substantially better than they were pre-pandemic. But the kids who were struggling are now further behind. It was it was really fascinating. I don't know if I'm articulating it well, but it's worth looking into about how pandemic affected students who were performing at different levels. And certainly there's a wealth factor there as well. Yeah. And a lot of those avid remedies would be really useful now. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's what I was gonna I was gonna end with that point. I mean, I think that the Abbott requirements for essential resources, adequate funding for essential resources, now which includes obviously technology and, and, and the internet, and, and also to deal with kids who are behind, kids who need to catch up, kids who need to be found. Yeah. Those constitutional entitlements are still there. So I guess one of the things to kind of close on is that uh, trying to elevate those entitlements again as a basis on which to begin to advocate and, and yeah. tackle some of these new challenges that you're both talking about, because they're they're pretty daunting. Yeah, I think for me, I've been I've been I've been grappling with that. And so my position right now is that while there is probably the greatest work of our lives as advocates to do right now, we're gonna have to pull our card of we need a minute. <laughs> We need a minute. Our families are still healing. We, we've lost loved ones. And I think that's what's happening. You would think that right now there would be this like, okay, everybody, let's unite. We have to get this right. But we're all realizing, wait a minute, like we're going to pull our justice card and say, we need a moment, just like every other white American and, and person of privilege to just heal, to take care of our homes, to make sure our children are okay to recover financially, for some people to bury our loved ones, to go put some flowers on their grave to mourn them. We need a moment to just heal our households. And then once we've done that, then we will say, okay, now we're ready to tackle this next thing. And we're gonna call in Education Law Center to tell us, <laughs> okay, what do we got? You know, what can we do? But I really think we need a moment because we, we are, we've struggled too, you know? And that's just where I am and how I'm feeling. I've taken my moment. I'm trying to get back into the groove of things, but my kid is still once again home post pandemic and I am struggling. Even right now I'm, I'm fully present here, but he is going off in the other room because he's either hungry or needs to be changed or who knows. And so once we heal and get our, our, ourselves together, 
I think that our next step will be to talk about what do our children need in this moment? And I hope it includes those who are gone from our high schools that we reach out and pull them back as well because they deserve some of our time and, and attention too. I fully agree. Self-care is important. It's like being on the plane. If there's an oxygen emergency, you have to cover your own nose first before you can help somebody else. Otherwise you're gonna pass out and you're not gonna be helping anyone. So I, I hear and acknowledge the importance of self-care. We're encouraging it in our parents and we're encouraging it in our staff and colleagues. Take care of yourself. We're providing that through doing online restorative practices and the healing-centered engagement work. We're doing check-ins now at every meeting. How are you? What is giving you hope? We want to hear that from people because sometimes it's the only time that they take a pause to even think about it. So I, I acknowledge and thank you for that, Kalina. And yes, do take your moment. It's important. The struggle continues. There is so much to be done. Rome was not built in a day, but we have to keep trying. And until as a society, we honor and respect education as public good and something that is necessary. I've told people, if we don't educate the kids in the city, guess what? They're gonna pull their resources and buy the home in your neighborhood. And then what? Um, we, we don't live isolated in cities. There's no barrier holding us in. Um, so if we want this society to grow, we have to make sure that our kids have the opportunities to grow as well. All right, well, I wanna take this moment to thank both of you for an incredible discussion. I really, really have enjoyed it. And thank you so much for your insights and your, and also for your dedication, your passion, your, you are doing the really hard work here day in, day out, on the ground with students and parents that need assistance, need help, need support, need care. So I wanna, I wanna personally thank both of you for joining us and for thanking you for all the work that you do and your organizations and your colleagues and keep it up. Thank so thanks, you. Thanks, thank thanks you so much. <laughs> thank you for having us. We wanna thank you too. I know that we benefit from the love and like the constant hugs and, and stuff that we get from the people that we serve. And that keeps us going, that love that they give us. But, you know, folks like Ed Lawson and you guys do your work, you know, in courtrooms and you don't always have access to the people and it has to be harder. The judges don't hug, do they? No, <laughs> that there are millions of, of families who are grateful for your work. So thank you. You're here. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about the Education Law Center, their wide-ranging work to protect the rights of children, and New Jersey's history of school funding litigation, please visit ELC's website at www.edlawcenter.org. For more information about Legal One, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org/legalonenj.